If you're too busy listening to an entire podcast series all about testosterone, then you're in luck today. In this podcast episode, we're doing a review of the last 13 podcasts that have been all about testosterone. We'll do a high-level overview and then hit the high points, and after this episode, you'll have a solid understanding about all things testosterone. Let's go. First, let's talk about testosterone physiology. Testosterone is the primary sex hormone in males and is a steroid hormone that is derived from cholesterol. Now to get testosterone, your hypothalamus secretes something called gonadotropin-releasing hormone, or GNRH, which then acts on the pituitary gland in your brain, which then makes luteinizing hormone, or LH, and follicle-stimulating hormone, or FSH. From here, LH acts on the lighting cells of the testes to help produce testosterone, and then FSH acts on the Sertoli cells of the testes to then produce sperm and a molecule called inhibin. See, this whole mechanism of testosterone creation is part of something called the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal or testes axis, or the HPG or HPT axis. This is a critical concept to understand because if you understand this concept, you'll understand how most of the hormones in the body actually work. This axis is very finely tuned to help give your body the right amount of hormones at the right time. And as we mentioned previously, there's a molecule called inhibin that is actually created from the Sertoli cells of the testes that plays an important role in feedback of our HPG axis. But other hormones like testosterone and estrogen can also play a role in this axis as well. When your body has elevated levels of either inhibin, testosterone, or estrogen, they send a signal back to the brain saying, whoa, pump the brakes on making more testosterone because that has more than enough. So when testosterone is high, it throttles production, but if it's low, it will try to ramp up the LH and FSH to try to create more testosterone. It's a pretty cool system of checks and balances. So that's a lot of background knowledge right there, but I think it's always good to have an understanding of physiology behind something because it helps you remember it for a long term instead of just memorizing some random thing. But what's the big deal with testosterone anyways? Well, why am I spending so much time talking about this? Well, it turns out that testosterone plays a really big role in things like secondary male sex characteristics development, things like deepening your voice and growing of body and facial hair, development of sexual organs, maturation of sperm, and increasing libido. Additionally, it can produce anabolic changes like increased muscle protein synthesis and changes in body composition that are positive as well. And we do see much more testosterone in males compared to females. But once again, this is a reminder that you will find both estrogen and testosterone in different proportions in both males and females. It's also important to understand that the concept of free versus bound testosterone. Only a small percentage of testosterone is actually free in the blood because most of it's bound to either sex hormone binding globulin, also known as SHGB, or albumin. And the reason we care about this is because you can't get the effects of testosterone when it's bound, so it has to be released to work at its target organ. Overall, there's a way higher affinity for SHBG than albumin, but albumin is much more prevalent. So overall, there's a fairly equal split on how much is spread out between these two. Overall, about 45% is bound to SHGB with about 53% bound albumin, and only 2% of testosterone is in its free state. We'll talk more about this in a second, but it's really important to understand that the vast majority of testosterone in your body is bound and not in the active form. Also, it's worth mentioning that there's a direct relationship between testosterone and estrogen in that testosterone is used to actually synthesize estrogen, and they both have very similar chemical structures. The enzyme called aromatase converts testosterone to estrogen, and aromatase can be seen all throughout the body in adipose tissue, the liver, gonads, central nervous system, and skeletal muscle. Most males have some amount of estrogen, like I mentioned before, but if there's a large amount, it can lead to unwanted side effects like water retention or female breast development tissue, among other things. In addition to estrogen, there's also another hormone that's similar to testosterone called DHT or dihydrotestosterone. This is a metabolite of testosterone and it's about three to four times more potent than testosterone actually is and has a much higher affinity for the androgen receptors. Testosterone is converted to this DHT molecule by something called 5-alpha reductase, which is an enzyme that's found in high amounts in things like the prostate, skin, scalp, and liver. And DHT can have androgenic side effects and can lead to things like acne or accelerated male pattern baldness, aka I must have a lot of DHT because I started balding when I was 18. 
And so overall, testosterone physiology is fascinating, finely tuned, and incredibly complex. And it's a miracle that it works the way it does. But I hope this was a helpful overview of how testosterone is made, because I think it lays an important understanding and foundation for what we have to talk about. Now that we have a basic understanding of testosterone, we're going to move on to the overall approach to treating patients with low testosterone, or otherwise known as clinical hypogonadism. I'm essentially going to go through the Endocrine Society's clinical practice guideline talking about how to treat men with hypogonadism. This is a huge document that is based on a deep literature review and expert opinion on how to best treat and diagnose patients with clinical hypogonadism. It might be helpful to first start off defining what hypogonadism actually is. The definition is a clinical syndrome that results from a failure of the testes to produce physiological concentrations of testosterone and or a normal number of sperm due to pathology at one or more of the hypothalamic pituitary testicular axis. Holy cow, that's a lot. But if we go back just a little bit ago, we talked all about the importance of GnRH, LH, and FSH, and how these play an important role in secreting testosterone, right? So for hypogonadism, if there's an abnormality at the level of the testicle, then it's called primary hypogonadism, meaning we have an issue at the testes. Whereas if the abnormality is somewhere else, either in the hypothalamus or the pituitary, then it's called secondary hypogonadism. And we can break this down even a little further. For primary hypogonadism, this results in low testosterone and an impairment of spermatogenesis, and you'll have an elevated LH and FSH. So essentially what's happening is the hypothalamus still works, and so does the pituitary. So GnRH and LH and FSH are being secreted like crazy to try to get the testes to make more testosterone with no success. And so LH and FSH are pumped up even more just trying to catch up and make more testosterone, but there's an issue at the testes, so it's not working. Whereas if we look at secondary hypogonadism, you have a low testosterone and impairments in spermatogenesis again, but you typically have a low or inappropriately normal gonadotropin level. So here the testes still work, but the precursors to stimulate the testes, whether it's GnRH, LH, or FSH, aren't working properly. And then to make things even more confusing, we can subclass for things even more into organic or functional hypogonadism, where organic hypogonadism is caused by a congenital structure or destructive order that results in a permanent dysfunction of the HPT axis, whereas a secondary organic hypogonadism leads to an issue in testosterone due to permanent issues outside of the testes, like iron overload syndromes or issues with the hypothalamus or the pituitary. And then there's also functional hypogonadism, and that's caused by conditions that suppress gonadotropin and testosterone concentrations, but are potentially reversible, you know, due to some underlying treatment that we can do. So let's just break it down, make it a little simpler again on how to determine the cause of hypogonadism. The first step is to determine whether it's hypothalamic, pituitary, and or testicular. And if it's secondary, remember, we'll have an inappropriately low or normal LH and FSH with low testosterone. And then to further figure out what's, where that's coming from, we can do other things like measuring hormones like prolactin, looking at iron, or doing a scan of the brain to see if there's any issues with the pituitary that could be causing this. And so overall, this may seem like we're getting in the nitty gritty here a little bit, and I know it is, but it's helpful to understand that primary hypogonadism is low testosterone with really high LH and FSH or GnRH, whereas secondary has low testosterone, but abnormally normal or low LH and FSH. And to further differentiate them, they can either be organic, where there's pretty much irreversible causes, or functional, which are most likely reversible. The vast majority of cases that I see in my clinic are functional secondary hypogonadism. And so you might be wondering, Jordan, how do we actually make this diagnosis? You're talking about a lot of stuff here that doesn't really matter, I don't think. How do we make the diagnosis? Well, there's two main components, and that is a clinical and laboratory diagnosis. So if someone just gets their lab checked and they have a low testosterone, but they have no symptoms whatsoever, then they're not going to be diagnosed with clinical hypogonadism. You need to have a low testosterone and clinical symptoms. And you might be asking me, well, what actually are the symptoms of low testosterone? That's a great question. The answer is that they can be very variable. And a lot of times they're nonspecific and different for everybody. But some of the most specific symptoms that we see are things like incomplete or delayed sexual development, loss of body hair, or having very small testes. But a lot of times these are found earlier in someone's life when they're not developing normally, so they aren't really that common later in life. 
Other suggestive symptoms include reduced sexual desire libido with decreased spontaneous erections or erectile dysfunction. And you also may see a disproportionate or abnormal fat distribution. And these are signs that would kind of get me concerned for low testosterone. And then in addition to that, there's also some other more nonspecific symptoms that a lot of people talk about. Things like decreased motivation, fatigue, feeling down, poor concentration, sleep disturbances, and other things like that that are super common in many, many other conditions. And so just because you have a few of these symptoms doesn't necessarily mean you have low testosterone. And speaking of low testosterone, it's important to find what low testosterone actually is. But before we do that, we should talk about what can affect testosterone levels and how we actually test for it. So one of the issues with testosterone testing is that so many things can affect testosterone, including an acute illness, nutritional deficiencies, certain medications, obesity, diabetes, sleep, your overall health status, and tons of other things. And in the population itself, there's a very large variety of testosterone levels. And a lot of the differences can also be explained by genetic changes. Additionally, this is a hormone that is secreted in a dineural fashion, which means that we usually have a peak in the morning and then later in the afternoon, it's much lower. In fact, 30% of men with a low testosterone measurement will have a normal on repeat. So we need to do two measurements. I'll foot stomp that. We need to do two measurements. So once again, the most critical thing for diagnosis is we have to do two morning fasting testosterone levels that are low. And when I mean low, I'm talking about typically around 250 to 300 nanograms per deciliter. And if your first lab value is around that area, kind of borderline, then we'll typically get an additional test of that testosterone. And then we'll also add on things like free testosterone and SHGB. And once you've been officially diagnosed with hypogonadism and you've worked up any other causes that may be causing it, and you're determined whether it's primary or secondary, treatment can then start. And it's important to know that the Endocrine Society recommends treatment for all those who are clinically deficient in testosterone and not necessarily those people who just want to try it out or think it might be helpful or because they're getting a bit older. They recommend to use it to correct the symptoms of testosterone deficiency. However, there are some people that they recommend not using it for. And those people include those who are planning to father a child in the near future. If they have a history of breast or prostate cancer, they have a palpable prostate nodule or a PSA greater than four nanograms per milliliter. If they have an elevated hematocrit, severe obstructive sleep apnea, uncontrolled heart failure, or have had a heart attack or stroke in the past six months, or have a clotting disorder. So that's a lot of things, but some of those are really important. The discussion about treatment of testosterone with prostate issues is very nuanced, and they recommend you discuss it with the physician about the potential risks and benefits, especially if you have a high risk of having prostate issues. And in terms of treatment efficacy, it does seem to be very efficacious in terms of improving libido, erectile dysfunction, and sexual activity, but only for those who are low to begin with, and not those who are in the normal range. And so one of the biggest questions we always ask is what are the side effects of testosterone? And overall, there's definitely some side effects we need to be aware of, but it seems to be pretty safe with a relatively low frequency of side effects. Some of the most common side effects include acne, potential breast enlargement, speeding up male pattern baldness, potential sleep apnea, and possible growth of the prostate or an abnormal lipid profile. A couple of things we really care about are also the effects it has on your blood and that it can create something called erythrocytosis or an increase in your red blood cell or hematocrit count. And the reason we care so much about this is that it kind of gets high. Then we worry about it to lead to occlusive events like things like heart attacks and strokes, which obviously we want to avoid. In terms of prostate cancer, it's questionable if it increases the risk of prostate cancer, but because we know that androgen receptors play a big role in the biology of prostate cancer, so it's generally not recommended in those with high risk for prostate cancer. But once again, this is going to be an individualized discussion with your physician. In terms of how you get treatment, there are multiple options, including injections, transdermal gels, axillary solutions, transdermal patches, tablets you can put in your cheek, pellets you can place in your body, or nasal gels, and that's a lot of options. Now, not all of these forms are going to be available everywhere in the world, as only certain forms are available in certain places, but the vast majority of treatments are usually with either injections, gels, or patches. In terms of injections, this is typically something called testosterone enanthinate or cypionate. And the recommended doses are usually about 150 to 200 milligrams intramuscularly every two weeks, or about 75 to 100 milligrams per week. 
Some other clinicians may use more frequent dosing. And the reason people talk about using more frequent dosing is because when we do give these injections, we have a peak of testosterone that leads to kind of fluctuations potentially in their symptoms, things like mood or libido. And with these injections, we essentially start off at super physiologic ranges. So it shoots way up. And by the time we're ready for the next dose, it's gone all the way down again. And we may actually be below our testosterone level on the lower limit there. So that being said, this is inexpensive though, and relatively easy to administer. So that's why people like it. In addition to that, we have transdermal gels and patches. Both of these give a more consistent dose of testosterone, and we avoid these big peaks like we have with the injections. But the biggest disadvantage is that they can irritate the skin, and they're not that easy to titrate. And occasionally, you know, with the gels and patches, they have potential to fall off, or someone else could touch them, be exposed to them. So you have to consider that if you're living with someone else. The less common versions are the oral tablets, injectable pellets, and other things like that. And if you're looking for these more specific use cases, you probably want to talk to someone who does this a lot. And so let's say you are getting treatment and going through this whole thing. How do we monitor this? Well, the Endocrine Society recommends you should maintain serum testosterone levels in the mid-normal range for healthy young men. And you should evaluate your symptoms and signs of testosterone deficiency throughout the cycle and then see if you have any adverse effects as well. Additionally, you should measure your testosterone levels and hematocrit at three to six months after starting, and then once again, measuring the testosterone and hematocrit at 12 months, and then annually after that, after you've kind of had a hit a stable dose. Because if it gets above 54%, we want to stop until that decreases, because once again, when we have a hematocrit that high, we worry about the risk of clotting. And so overall, that was a lot, I apologize, but those are the recommendations of the Endocrine Society guidelines on how to diagnose, treat, and monitor testosterone. The next thing I specifically want to talk about is testosterone testing. There are several challenges that exist in the diagnosis and treatment of hypogonadism, including variable testosterone assays, the lack of consensus on what a normal testosterone actually is, and poor objective measures for symptom assessment and therapeutic benefit. And so like I mentioned previously, there was a number around, around 250 to 300 that people recommend to use for low testosterone, but actually there's not a single consensus number, meaning there's not one number that everyone agrees on. So it makes it really hard to define what is low testosterone. There are multiple societies that put out different recommendations and a multi-society recommendation that a total testosterone level less than 230 nanograms per deciliter in young men would benefit from treatment. And they felt that, you know, if you're over 350, you probably wouldn't benefit. And like I said, it's not slam dunk at all because the endocrine society then says, you know, they say, actually, if you're at 280 or less that we can start treating it. And so there's kind of some murkiness in the water. It's not slam dunk on what they want to do. Additionally, the multi-society guidelines recommend checking the free testosterone if there's borderline total testosterone. Like I said, borderline around 200, 350, somewhere in that range. And the cutoff for a low free testosterone was around 65 picograms per milliliter. So long story short, even across societies, there's no hard and fast rule. And oftentimes local labs will even have their own reference ranges, making it even more confusing. On top of that, we're picking what a normal testosterone should be based on, quote, normal healthy men. And oftentimes that doesn't really apply to the patients that are getting testosterone. These normal healthy men don't have lots of things like obesity or other comorbidities. So we're comparing these young men in when in reality, we really don't know what the normal range for an older man might actually be. On top of that, we're unsure how aging even affects testosterone levels, if it does at all. There's some studies that show that there are some age-dependent decreases in testosterone, meaning as you age, you expect to see a decrease of testosterone anywhere from about 0.8% per year uh, from ages from about 40 to 70. However, there's other studies that don't seem to suggest that this is true and that there actually may be decline in testosterone with age and it's more tightly related to accumulation of chronic medical conditions. And so is it the age or is it the comorbidities that are coming with age causing this low testosterone? Who knows? And it's going to be really hard to figure out which one is actually causing the other. So this is another reason why testosterone tests are tricky. On top of that, the time of day really matters for when you test it. Testosterone levels obtained at about 4 p.m. are about 20 to 25% lower in men when compared to morning levels. And so once again, you need to have that morning test. And to make things even more interesting, there seems to be just a certain amount of natural variability in testosterone levels that can be quite profound. 
there can be big differences in the same person on different days. And one study showed that testosterone values can vary up to 32% between subsequent days. And another study found that 50% of men who are identified as hypogonism were found to be normal on repeat exams. So once again, it just shows you that one value in one single test is pretty much worthless. And on top of that, the test itself is not the best either. There's two different ways of doing it, which are immunoassays and mass spectrometry. And overall, we don't have to dive deep in this because this is definitely not my area of expertise, but it seems that because of how involved these tests are, they do seem to have quite a bit of variability baked in them. One study looked at saw a wide ranging variability between these tests, anywhere between 20 to 40% different between the different assays that are used. And the reason I want to bring this up is because I want to let you know that it's important that we need to consider these things when making a diagnosis because we need to make the proper diagnosis, right? This is a potentially lifelong medication we're starting on. So we want to make sure that the diagnosis is actually correct. Additionally, I want to give you information on this because I think there are places out there that will check your testosterone once, maybe in the afternoon, and then say, yep, you have low testosterone and start you on lifelong testosterone therapy, which I essentially consider that to be malpractice. And so moving on from that, we're going to talk about obesity and testosterone now. Another topic that's worth our attention is the relationship between testosterone and obesity. The reason this is important is because a lot of people claim their testosterone is low because of reasons unrelated to the obesity. But could it be that the two are linked? In my research, it seems like obesity is the single most important factor associated with low testosterone, even overriding age and comorbidities. And so it's very important to talk about this. So overall, it doesn't look like obesity actually disrupts the HPT axis unless you start getting with a BMI greater than 40. And so that doesn't necessarily explain why we have low testosterone, but clearly there have to be other roles as well. The exact mechanism is not known, but we have a couple ideas for what may be playing into that. The first one is that those who have obesity have higher estrogen levels secondary to the excess adipose tissue converting testosterone to estrogen via the aromatase enzyme we mentioned previously. Another theory is that maybe there's some leptin resistance where leptin usually promotes satiety and increases metabolism, but they find that people who have obesity, they tend to have elevated levels of leptin and they're resistant to it. So it actually could lead to a feedback mechanism back on the hypothalamus and suppress the HPT axis, thus leading to lower testosterone levels. On top of that, we also know that having increased adipose tissue promotes a pro-inflammatory environment. And it seems that a pro-inflammatory environment tends to have an inverse relationship with testosterone, meaning that the more inflammation there is, the lower the testosterone level. On top of that, we know that obesity can lead to a reduction in SHBG, which is thought to be due to elevated insulin. As we know, a lot of testosterone binds to SHBG. Typically, we secrete this SHBG from the liver into the blood, where it then binds testosterone and regulates its bioavailability. But if we have lower levels of SHBG, then that means there's going to be less total testosterone circulation. So looking at all these options, we definitely have a couple reasons for why it might be happening. So the question is then, if we have obesity or extra weight, does losing the weight seem to improve testosterone? And the answer seems to be, yeah, it actually seems to be directly proportional to the amount of weight you lose, meaning the more weight you lose, the more testosterone increases. There's some interesting studies showing that after bariatric surgery, people can increase their testosterone about 250 nanograms per deciliter just with the surgery. However, I understand that losing weight isn't that easy. I get that. And it can be a vicious cycle at times. A holistic lifestyle change is always recommended anytime we're talking about overweight or obesity, because we know that if we lose weight, we'll have decreased adipocytes, which leads to decreased aromatase and less estrogen overall and less feedback on the HPT axis. So even if you lose just 10%, we start to see really significant changes in testosterone. However, I do think it's worth mentioning that some people might just say, well, Jordan, why don't we just kickstart this process and give that person testosterone? And although this is not an unreasonable idea, the data doesn't seem to point that you have lasting body composition changes unless you stay on the testosterone. It's not like you can just start the testosterone, lose some weight, and then stop it because it seems that if once you stop, your body composition changes don't stick. So overall, it's very clear and undeniable that obesity is a risk factor for low testosterone levels, but it doesn't explain everything. So we don't want to use it as a crutch. But that being said, I would never give testosterone to someone without first talking about lifestyle changes. And a lot of times that's all we need to do is just change lifestyle. So this is why weight loss will always be the cornerstone of any treatment for anybody who has obesity and low testosterone.
And so switching gears a little bit, another common question that I've seen is, does testosterone increase the risk of cardiovascular disease? Essentially, this comes from the idea that it might be dangerous for your heart because the FDA put out a black box warning on testosterone after an advisory committee decided that there is a possible increase in cardiovascular risk for men who took testosterone. Overall, some studies showed an increased risk for strokes, heart attacks, and death, but other studies did not. So overall, the committee just felt that it'd be worthwhile to at least warn the public about this option. The second area where this comes from is the world of anabolic steroids and bodybuilding. Anybody who follows the lifting scene knows of at least one young athlete who had a heart attack after using copious amounts of anabolic steroids. And although they're probably using significantly more than just testosterone, it's still scary for a lot of people. So the first question we always ask is, is this actually plausible? Well, there are multiple mechanisms that could contribute to the risk, including changing the lipid profile to a less favorable pattern by decreasing HDL, increasing the risk of high blood pressure, increasing the risk of subclinical atherosclerosis, or that it may cause inflammation or lead to an increase in clotting events. So those are kind of the options that we're talking about. So overall, a mechanistic explanation is definitely plausible. However, overall, the results are mixed. There are some studies that show an increase in carotid intima media thickness, which is saying plaque inside of your arteries, which puts people at risk for cardiovascular events. On top of that, the low HDL pattern may be of concern as it can indicate a potential inhibited cholesterol clearance. But in terms of inflammation and coagulation, that doesn't seem to be that solid in the science. So it doesn't seem like that's our biggest concern. However, what do we look at when we find the data? We find that prospective longitudinal studies were not consistent, and they may have actually shown an association with lower testosterone levels and increased all-cause mortality. So actually the opposite of what people are suggesting. Then we move on to randomized trials. Meta-analyses haven't really shown significant associations between testosterone and cardiovascular events or mortality. And finally, a really good study called the Traverse Study came out in July 2023, which was a randomized, multi-center, double-blinded placebo trial of men with hypogonadism and pre-existing cardiovascular disease or those who are at increased risk of cardiovascular disease, meaning they had risk factors like hypertension, dyslipidemia, smoking, or had a previous heart attack. They looked at 6,000 of these men, and they titrated up their testosterone gels based on the range of 350 to 750, and they looked for major cardiac events. And they found that testosterone therapy was not inferior to placebo when it came to these outcomes. And so what they found was that those who had the highest risk for cardiovascular disease didn't seem to show an increased risk of cardiac events when on testosterone. So overall, this is a pretty big deal and probably makes a lot of people in the community feel much more comfortable prescribing testosterone to patients who are at a high risk for cardiovascular disease. Now, obviously it's not that simple and you're gonna always have to talk to your physician about it. But I think overall, it's pointing in the direction that this seems to be not quite as dangerous as we thought it was from a cardiovascular perspective. Another interesting topic that I wanted to discover was the question of whether soy products can decrease testosterone levels. If you look online, there's a lot of opinionated people talking all about this, so I figured I'd look into it. Essentially, what I found is like all goes back to a case report on a male who had gynecomastia from consuming ridiculous amounts of soy milk, and he found out that his estrogen levels were about 5 to 10 times above the average limit. So people just saw that and just ran with it from there. So let's get started with a little background first, though. Soy is a phytoestrogen, which is an estrogen-like compound that's derived from plants. And these contain four different molecules called isoflavones. These isoflavones are chemically similar to estrogen, but they're not the same physiologically, and you do not see the same effects as you would expect to see with estrogen. For example, these isoflavones have a higher affinity for the beta estrogen receptor, whereas regular estrogen prefers the alpha receptors. And even then, alpha and beta receptors can be found on different tissues and exert different and sometimes even opposite physiologic effects, meaning that they do not always do the same things. Regardless, is this even mechanistically possible to cause low testosterone with increase in isoflavone consumption? Well, maybe because the idea that we know estrogen can serve as a negative feedback for testosterone production. So if there's a more estrogen in these isoflavones around, then maybe less testosterone, right? There's also some rat studies showing that increased phytoestrogen consumption can lead to lower testosterone. So because they saw that, further studies had to be done. 
Since then, there have been multiple studies and meta-analyses looking at men and their various levels of SHGB, total testosterone, free testosterone, and estrogen compared to their soy consumption, and they found that there is no significant effects of soy or isoflavone exposure on any of these hormones. So overall, it does not seem like there's a strong tie between soy and elevation in estrogen or a decrease in testosterone. So for me, this is not one of the biggest things I worry about when thinking about testosterone. Is it possible that soy products affect some people more than others? Absolutely. But overall, I think if you're mixing this into an otherwise healthy dietary pattern, it just doesn't seem to be a big deal. And keeping on with popular social media topics, if you go online, you're going to get thousands of results of people telling you how to increase your testosterone with various exercise. There are a lot of people making some really big claims, and so I kind of look into this as well. Does exercise affect your testosterone? So first of all, let's look at resistance training. And overall, it does look like intense resistance training. It does indeed raise your testosterone, growth hormone, and IGF-1. And it seems to be related to how much muscle you use, meaning that when you use free weights with large compound movements, this seems to have a higher increase in testosterone than isolation exercises. However, the big thing is that we tend to see a spike in testosterone that is transient and not long-lasting. So we'll see the spike, and then it just returns back to its baseline within like a 30 minutes or an hour or so. And well, what about endurance exercise, you might ask? Is that any different? Well, not really. Most of the data here is on elite runners or cyclists. And once again, we do see a spike in testosterone related to how intense exercise is. But once again, it's transient and spikes up and goes back down. And so for most of these studies for both resistance training and aerobic exercise, it seems like the decline goes back to its baseline within about 90 minutes. And so you might be asking, do these spikes lead to positive changes overall, like long-term testosterone? And the answer is, we're not quite sure. Some ideas are that this acute increase in testosterone may increase protein synthesis or increase mRNA translation or essentially prime the antigen receptors to respond well to elevated levels of testosterone. And so all these things may be true, but we're not definitively sure that because even in these studies with normal testosterone, you can still see similar muscle adaptations, meaning that those who had really high testosterone versus those who had normal testosterone still had these muscle changes. So is it all just the testosterone creating muscle changes? We're not entirely sure. But overall, exercise in and of itself, though, doesn't seem to be playing a huge role in basal testosterone levels. However, because we know what a significant impact exercise can have on muscle hypertrophy and over health, well-being, and body composition changes, it's still one of the best ways to overall increase your testosterone because in the long run, what it does to your body composition is very favorable. So overall, I wouldn't worry about which exercise to do to optimize your testosterone. Rather, optimize the things you want to get better at, whether that's strength or endurance work, and work out hard because the act of exercising in and of itself is super important for your health and overall body composition changes, and it's probably the most important thing you can do to change your testosterone and body composition overall. Next, we're going to pivot just a little bit and talk about testosterone and diet, and another very hotly debated topic online about how diet can increase your testosterone. There's a lot of claims out there, and they can be very overwhelming. Most of the time, you find people just touting shady science or anecdotes at best. After looking at a lot of data, it was very confusing, but overall, I think I have two main things that are important when it comes to maintaining a healthy testosterone level. And those two things are maintaining a healthy body composition and eating a health-promoting dietary pattern. I know this sounds incredibly boring, but it's the truth. I think that maintaining a healthy body composition through whatever dietary pattern you feel is appropriate is the most important thing you can do, and there's no amount of testosterone-boosting foods that will make up for poor body composition. However, there is a sweet spot, right? We do know that excess adiposity can lead to decreased testosterone and increased estrogen. But if you get too lean, then you also may lead to decrease in testosterone as well. So we want to have this kind of healthy spot that's not too high or not too low. And so someone might ask, what does a healthy dietary pattern actually look like? And that might be up for interpretation. But like I've talked about in previous articles and videos, the general consensus is a minimally processed diet with lots of fruits, veggies, whole grains if you consume those, and then lean proteins and trying to minimize saturated fats. 
On top of that, they've also looked at the diet inflammatory index and its associated testosterone changes. And overall, they did show that those who had the highest inflammatory diet showed a potential decrease in testosterone, but they also had the highest BMI, so not a great study. But overall, if you're going to score well on the dietary inflammatory index, it's going to be a diet that's full of things I mentioned previously about unprocessed foods with lots of fiber, vegetables, and fruit. There are some specific trends, though, with macronutrients, though, that I think it might be a good idea to think about when trying to optimize your testosterone. And overall, the one trend I did see is that those who had a low-fat diet may have had a slightly lower testosterone, so it might be ideal to have a normal amount of fat in your diet. Overall, though, I don't think there are any specific foods that are magic, and if someone tells you that they are, then I probably wouldn't believe them. I think that overall, the vast majority of people do not need to worry about specific diets or macronutrients unless they're very extreme on one range of the spectrum or the other. Once again, I think that if you focus on body composition and eating an overall health-promoting diet, I think you're going to be on the right track, and you're going to be doing all the things you can doing to optimize your testosterone. And so the next topic we're going to talk about kind of goes hand in hand with testosterone levels. There's a claim that I've seen online that the overall level of testosterone for males is decreasing in the general public. And I want to see if it's actually true. It's usually from a group of people on the internet who claim that we're losing what makes us men and kind of comes from this arrogant and alpha male corner of the internet. But that being said, I've heard from other reputable sources as well. So I want to look into it. I'll admit that at first I thought it was a bunch of nothing. I thought that ah, this is going to be absolutely nothing. But there is some data showing that we've dropped potentially over 100 milligrams per deciliter on average over the past few decades. But I think it's important to talk about some of the caveats of that. All the data we have is non-experimental, meaning that it's just overall trends. So we can't fully know what the cause is, but we can only speculate. And on top of that, we know how difficult it is to measure testosterone with our various assays. And certainly they've changed over the last couple of decades. So there's a chance that due to this, the natural variation in the test and the variation or decrease in testosterone that we might see just a normal standard deviation of the test over time. And on top of that, we actually don't know what a quote normal lab value was back in the day. And now with more accurate testing, maybe we're just finally showing what the new normal for males actually was. And so maybe the previous values were not normal. But that being said, it's not very clear one way or another. Some of the proposed mechanisms for why we might be decreasing testosterone are obesity, illness, and environmental factors. Overall, we are increasing our BMI on average as a society. There's no debating that. And we know that it can lead to decreased testosterone. There are multiple studies that have tried to control for obesity, and these analyses still found a trend of decreased testosterone. So this probably isn't the only reason that there's a decrease in testosterone, if there is indeed one. The second idea is that overall we're getting more sick and have more chronic conditions like obesity, hypertension, diabetes, sleep apnea, you name it. Typically, when you start to accumulate these conditions, you see a decrease in testosterone. And so is it just that the population is getting more sick? Well, once again, when we try to control for these things, it doesn't seem to fully explain everything. So there's probably something else that could be going on as well. The final fact we look at is the environmental factors. Things like endocrine disrupting chemicals like bisphenol A, which can be found in plastics, also mechanistically do seem to have a legitimate mechanism for why it could decrease testosterone. And so overall, there might be a slight decrease in testosterone in males, but it's not entirely sure. So maybe it's getting lower, maybe it's not. The question I then have is, does it really matter? And I don't mean this to be facetious or say, you know, nothing matters, but I ask it because what can we do as individuals at this time, if indeed our testosterone level were lower than our ancestors? All we can do is continue to live the best life we can and focus on the big rocks like body composition, exercise, and diet. That being said though, if this is an actual problem, then I think we should be aware of it. So we can then make personal choices that may affect our exposure to environmental toxins and work on advocating for policy that helps protect future generations as well. That being said, my goal is just live my best life and do what I can do with the hand I've been dealt and not obsess over testosterone levels. All right, moving on to the next topic, we're going to talk about testosterone and depression. Depression is a global pandemic, and some people have recommended that treating males with testosterone may help their depressive symptoms. It all started with rodent models that showed an improvement in dopamine release and the establishment of new neuronal connections in rats who received testosterone, and they hypothesized that maybe these changes may indicate that testosterone could help depression. 
There are also some cohort studies of middle-aged men showing an association with low testosterone and depression. And then actually there's some RCTs showing that testosterone may be beneficial for reducing depressive symptoms in certain subsets of men, but not all men. So with some data indicating that maybe it's working, physiologically speaking, why might low testosterone and depression be linked? Well, there's a couple different theories. Some argue that depression may just affect appetite, so we could lead to a decreased energy intake, which would lead to lower testosterone. On top of that, we know depression can lead to sleep issues, which can impact testosterone levels. Finally, in a depressed state, we also have elevated cortisol, which may potentially reduce GNR release, which can in turn decrease testosterone. There was a recent 2019 meta-analysis. It was a review of RCTs, which looked at 27 studies, about 2,000 men, and looked at the effectiveness of testosterone for depressive symptoms. And overall, testosterone therapy seemed to slightly improve depressive symptoms, which met the threshold for clinical significant improvement you know, compared to pharmacological interventions. Dropout rates were similar between the testosterone and non-testosterone groups, and they saw an improvement in symptoms with higher doses, with some doses being as high as one gram per week, which is pretty darn high. So overall, it did show some improvement that was marginal, but statistically, it was significant. And so a lot of people might be like, well, Jordan, it seems safe. Why don't we just do it? And the reason I'm hesitant to this is because it's just not conclusive data, first of all. And second of all, there's no real data on the safety or efficacy of testosterone long-term in the treatment of depression. So we're kind of just extrapolating with no real evidence base. However, I do think this is a consideration when we have some patients who have clinical hypogonadism and depressive symptoms. I think it's reasonable to try this then. However, I do want to mention that this should not be your first-line therapy for depressive symptoms, and if you're worried about clinical depression, you should be evaluated by a professional first. So that being said, though, I can see the argument for testosterone as an augment for mood disturbances in patients with low testosterone, and I think it's reasonable to discuss this if you've already have been diagnosed with low testosterone and these depressive symptoms. However, this would not be the first place I start, and certainly there is not enough data to support this to be first-line therapy. All right, and the final topic that we talked about was testosterone and sleep. Another pillar of health we talk about is sleep, right? All the time. So that's why I want to investigate this relationship between testosterone and sleep. From an epidemiologic data perspective, about 28 to 40% of people are getting less than seven hours of sleep per night, and the recommendations are between seven and nine hours. So on top of that, we already know that poor sleep can be linked with bad outcomes like diabetes, obesity, and a bunch of other things. So the question is, does sleep affect testosterone? Well, it all started back in 1971 when we had some studies that showed that testosterone peaks during REN sleep. And then they had additional studies where we sleep deprived a bunch of patients and then showed that that decreased their testosterone levels as well. And on top of that, there were additionally some more longitudinal observational studies and that also corroborated this finding that poor sleep led to decreased testosterone. And so first we saw a trend and then we needed to figure out what's the plausible mechanism. And like most things, we're not entirely sure. Testosterone secretion seems to be tightly linked with sleep and peak levels occur just or after REM starts. So it takes about 90 minutes to restore testosterone levels with sleeping and get restored to its peak during sleep, which coincides pretty well with how long it takes to have a sleep cycle. And overall, it does seem that a decrease in sleep leads to a decrease in testosterone with some papers showing a range of about 10 to 15% decrease of testosterone levels. On top of that, it's not just how much you sleep, but actually the sleep quality that matters. In fact, some papers might indicate that sleep quality might be more important than sleep duration. There was one study that looked at people who got the recommended amount of sleep, but overall still felt tired, indicating that their sleep quality was poor, and they had lower testosterone as well. So even though they were hitting the right amount of sleep, their quality wasn't good, so they had lower testosterone levels. And it might not just be sleep quantity or quality, but timing might matter as well. There's one study I saw that looked at people who got to sleep early in the night versus people who got time restricted later in the night showed that those who slept later in the night seemed to have better testosterone values. But once again, this was not incredibly strong data, but just something to consider. On top of that, the literature also mentions that there's a strong link between sleep apnea and low testosterone. So if you're concerned for sleep apnea, that's a very low hanging piece of fruit to improve your testosterone. And so overall, we know that sleep is critically important for so many things, and that's also true for testosterone levels. 
We think that poor sleep disrupts testosterone levels because REM sleep is linked to testosterone releases. And if we aren't getting as much sleep, we're not getting much REM sleep, therefore leading to testosterone decreases. It seems that the occasional bad night's sleep won't tank your testosterone, but if you're chronically affected with poor sleep, then you may have a persistent decrease in testosterone. So overall, it's recommended you get about seven to nine hours of sleep per night to help optimize your testosterone levels, but timing and quality may also play a role in this. And so overall, I think control what you can control, right? Although quality is important, you still have to focus on quantity because you can't get enough quality cycles unless you give yourself enough time to actually get those cycles. So this is actually something that I'll consider important when it comes to your testosterone levels, which makes sense because it's one of the pillars of health that we talk about consistently. And so just to wrap up this entire series, thank you so much for following along with me. If you followed along the whole way, I really appreciate it. If I had to sum up all of testosterone findings in just a couple sentences, it'd be this, that lifestyle changes really do matter. The biggest things you can do is have a healthy body composition, eat a health promoting diet, exercise, and get enough sleep. And then if all those things you're doing, if those are locked in and we still have concerns for low testosterone, then I think it's worth getting checked. And remember, if we're going to get checked, it's going to be two values in the morning on separate days to confirm that. And like I said, when we have treatment, we talked about what we can do. They can be very efficacious and it seems to be relatively safe for it, but I want you to be taking it for the right reasons. Understand this could be a potentially lifelong medication. So we want to make sure we're doing it for the right reasons. So thank you so much for following. I know this is a little bit of a longer podcast today, but this is a summary of hopefully all things testosterone. I hope you appreciate it. If you did like this, I really, really appreciate it. If you liked, comment, subscribe, or share with a friend, that'd be really helpful. Additionally, if you want more information like this, I have a newsletter that I send out an email you know, every once in a while, just when new things come out, whether a new video or podcast or whatnot. And if you want the information, please sign up for that. There's a link in the show notes. So, but thanks so much for stopping by. I really appreciate it. Now go outside, get off the phone. Have a great rest of your day. Disclaimer, this podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The topics discussed should not solely be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any condition. The information presented here was created with an evidence-based approach, but please keep in mind that science is always changing, and at the time of listening to this, there may be some new data that makes this information incomplete or inaccurate. Always seek the advice of your personal physician or qualified healthcare provider for questions regarding any medical condition.